Good morning. Um, Our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. So if you want to turn to it or switch it on or swipe or whatever you're doing. It's titled in my Bible, That Which Defiles. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human tradition. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outless, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I don't know about you, but when I'm sitting where you are in the congregation, I'm always curious to know who the person that is bringing God's word to me today is and what they're about. So a quick potted history, because a couple of you on my arrival this morning have asked me and uh, asked me different questions, and I've sort of said, oh, I'll, I'll tell you later. So a quick potted history. I'm Caroline Eglin. I'm a Baptist minister. And uh, after training at Bristol Baptist College and being the student uh, minister at Yeovil Baptist Church, I was ordained in 1985. That's a long time ago. Um, In 1990, I became the first female chaplain in the Royal Navy. And then I served for 16 years. um, And obviously during that time, Um, I was chaplain at a number of local establishments, including the Naval Base, Dartmouth, um, and uh, Raleigh across the water. 
the other side of the Tamar. After that, or I should say during that time, I met and married my husband, Ian. Ian is, he was at that time also a naval chaplain and he's an Anglican priest. So as some would say, it's a bit of a mixed ecumenical sort of um, marriage. After I left the Navy and Ian was the rector of Ippelpen between Newton Abbott and Totnes, if you know it that way, I became a minister at Newton Abbott Baptist Church and I also took on the role for the next 10 years of ministries. Somebody said, have I been to Mutley before? And I've been thinking about that since Mark invited me on my journey. But it's lovely to be with you today and thank you very much for the warmth of your welcome and the number of you that have come and said hello to me before the service. That's absolutely super. It's always good to go on a journey, isn't it? And perhaps over these recent years, we haven't done as much journeying as we used to. And as I said, we're just beginning to think about what we need to pack in our suitcase over the next couple of weeks when we go away on a locum. Packing for a couple of months is a bit more complicated than packing for just a week's holiday or a fortnight's holiday. We have to remember to take all those things that you can't live without and that you need. So we have to pack a cassock and an alb for Ian to wear week by week. We have to pack wait for it, the hot chocolate and the tea and certain elements of English-British food that are really difficult to buy in some of these other countries. And so the packing becomes quite complicated and we end up with our 23 kilos at about 22.8 in each suitcase and um, not many clothes to wear. But, you know, you've got to work out your essentials. But going on a journey is good because it opens up to us those new cultures, those new ways of doing things. It opens our eyes to the new views and the new scenery. And I'm sure that many of you, like me, enjoy journeying and travelling to somewhere new and exciting. And as a church family, you've begun this year on a journey a journey of discovery as you look at Mark's gospel week by week. And some of it's going to be very familiar, but some may be a new discovery. And then because of Nick's surgery, having different ministers and different preachers coming in, you have different perspectives. People who present different challenges. And the journey becomes not just that easy stroll through the park with our familiarity of Mark's gospel, but it becomes a walk up steep climbs, difficult gradients, the valleys and the mountains. Mark's gospel is a journey, and working through it chapter by chapter means that you are challenged by the less familiar and more difficult pieces of writing that so often we just manage to avoid and forget about. As you know, Mark's Gospel was the first Gospel to be written. It's the shortest, and it was used as a source by Luke and by Matthew in their Gospels, which is why some of the passages are so familiar to us. 
and often Luke and Matthew have expanded some of their accounts of those familiar bits. And the section of the journey that we're travelling on at the moment, in those chapters 6, 7 and 8, is a bit of undulating terrain with some exciting stuff. The miracles, the healing of folk, the walking on the water, the feeding of 5,000 and 4,000 people. But this is interspersed by the conflicts with the Pharisees and scribes who are extremely suspicious of Jesus. And they're out to catch him out. In our chapter today, chapter 7, which Andy read some of it to us, we see some of those confrontations and challenges. But we didn't read all of the chapter, so I challenge you to read the rest of the chapter later today or tomorrow. But the section that we heard read, we see the dispute with the Pharisees and the scribes. And then the two healing miracles I've left for you to catch up on and read yourselves at home. It's a roller coaster of the teaching and the challenge alongside the miraculous and the healings. It would be easy for me to pick on and reflect on those healing miracles and the miraculous. But let's look at this dispute. The last location we're told about of Jesus' whereabouts was at the end of chapter 6, and he was at Gennesaret. And at the beginning of chapter 7, we're told that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that is, the scribes, had come from Jerusalem. They were following the crowds, but out of a very different motive. They were watching Jesus like spies, observing his every move and watching what the disciples were up to. And at every given opportunity, they were picking up on the things they didn't like and didn't approve of. I wonder how observant of others you are I wonder what you're like in a restaurant. Do you like to sit where you can see the other tables? When you're eating a meal with friends or in a restaurant, do you observe what they do with their hands? Do you observe what they do with their knives and their forks and their spoons? Culturally, people eat using different instruments. Personally, I've never been able to master the chopsticks. I start and I do a few mouthfuls, but then I give up because my hand just gets exhausted. Maybe quietly at home you comment on how the others eat, maybe not to their face. But the Pharisees challenged Jesus because it was a big issue to them. It may have sounded a small thing, an insignificant thing, 
but to the scribes and the Pharisees, it was enormous. Yes, even a life and death situation. We know that it was a life and death situation from other parts of Scripture. People would rather die than get it wrong and defile the law. So the Pharisees and the scribes challenged Jesus over this hand-washing, and Jesus answered them by quoting from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And then Jesus goes on to quote Moses and uses his own Jewish tradition to answer the question and to challenge the scribes and the Pharisees. He then goes on to say more to the gathered crowd. He says in verses 14 and 15, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. The Pharisees and the scribes' strategy was an attempt to catch Jesus out by him doing the wrong ritualistic things. And yet Jesus retorts and responds with scripture. And so we need to understand something of this simple act of hand-washing. Because the hand-washing wasn't just about hygiene, it was about an extreme religious practice. It was expected to be done. It wasn't an optional extra. It wasn't a matter of washing them if you like. It was a religious practice. William Barclay, in his commentary, describes the washing of, his hand, of hands like this. Large stone vessels of water were specifically kept for the purposes, for the purpose, because ordinary water might be unclean. The amount of water used must be at least a quarter of a log. That is, enough to fill one and a half eggshells. First, the water must be poured over the hands beginning at the tips of the fingers and running down to the wrist. Then the palm must, of each hand must be clean, cleansed by rubbing the fist into the other into it. And then finally, water must again be poured over the hand, this time starting at the wrist and running down the fingertip. I'm sure that's how all of you wash your hands every day. To the Pharisees' way of thinking, it was practices like this, meticulously observed, that clinged to their hearts. If practices like this were followed, it would make them better, more religious, more upright men. 
And I should say that by using the word men is appropriate to the Pharisees and the scribes as there would have been no women involved. There were no female Pharisees. The scribes were the experts in the law. They interpreted the law to the minutest of details. They were the ones who enforced the ceremonial law, but they were also the experts in evasion and interpretation. They had the laws from the Old Testament texts, but they interpreted them to their own satisfaction. For example, the limit of a Sabbath day's journey was 2,000 cubits. That is, in today's money, about a kilometre. On the Sabbath, you were allowed to go about a kilometre from your home. But if a rope was tied across the end of the street, the end of the street became your residence. And you could go one kilometre beyond the rope. If on the Friday evening he left at any given point enough food for two meals, that point technically became his residence. And he could go another kilometre beyond that. They say rules are made to be broken. Another example is that it was forbidden Another example is one of the forbidden works on the Sabbath was the tying of knots. But a woman might tie a knot in her girdle. Therefore, if a bucket of water had had to be raised from a well, a rope could not be knotted to it. But a woman's girdle could, and it could be raised using the girdle. That's what we all have girdles for, isn't it, ladies? I shouldn't be sexist, my men. Feel free. The picture that conjures up is just awesome. To think that God could or would lay down the law like that seems incredible and absurd. The working out of these details was, to their mind, a religious service. And the keeping of them was a matter of life and death. That was legalistic religion. So it's no wonder that Jesus and the scribes were at loggerheads because they came from totally opposite sides of the spectrum. And so here in Mark 7 we see Jesus clearly teaching that it's not the extreme things entering one, like food, that defies them, but it's what comes out of the person that defiles them. It's about how we live and how we show what's inside of us. The scribes and the Pharisees were looking at it the wrong way round. It's not the religious practices that we obey that show God to others, but the way we live and what comes out of us. The love that comes from within us and is shown to others. 
It's what comes from the heart that defiles us. Jesus says in verse 20 and 21, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. And then he lists those things, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and follow. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. That's what we've got to deal with. So what does this teaching, this religious practice, these observances mean for us today? How does that affect the way we, you and me, here and now, February 2022, affect the way we live? If you look at this teaching of Jesus, we see how through these words, he was warning his followers about the things that really matter. His teaching was about showing love and forgiveness to others. It was about lifestyle and relationships. It was not about a legalistic and contentious approach to religious practice and its observances. So what does that say to us today? Does it say that the legalistic things don't matter at all? Does it mean that the observations and practices don't count in our religious life? Does it challenge us on how we live as the followers of Christ? In some ways, it's important that we recognise a balance. Jesus here shows that it's the way we live and respect and respond to other people that is important in our response to God, to be outward going towards others. But we also recognise that there are those things where perhaps we do have to recognise the legal approach and be conscious of our observing them. But many of those legal approaches we have to be observant of are not religious ones. They're ones that belong to our society and our community of this day. Let's just think of a couple of those legalistic things that challenge us in this way. What about safeguarding? It's probably our most favourite subject the favourite subject of ministers and church leaders. We have to participate in safeguarding training nowadays in order that we can hold a position of responsibility within church life. Legalistic, you may say, but it's been brought in by our government and therefore it needs to be respected and adhered to. It's not in many ways a religious practice, but a practice of our society and community, and I think we all understand why. We might not like doing the training. To be honest, we can all think of better ways of spending our time. But we know and we understand 
the situation in our society and community which has made safe training such a necessity. And what about the past two years with the current situation with COVID-19 protocols? How have, have we as Christians responded to that? How have we as Christians observed the rules? How are we observing the legislation? In many ways, the biggest difficulty has been keeping up with the current and correct practices. Now in our churches, there are no legal things implemented, but there are good practices, and local practices mean that each church can do different things because they're doing what is right for them and what they feel to be right for their fellowship. It was only when I got here this morning that I saw what some of your practices are. Church leaders can't enforce things legally, but as churches we can encourage one another in what we would like people to do. It's a matter of respecting one another, of loving one another, of understanding where we all are on this journey. It's been a difficult time. This practice, the legalistic, has been enforced by the government, but now we're in that element increasingly of respect and love how we deal with that will show that love of Christ to those around us. In our lives, are we consistent in our behaviour, saying and doing the same thing? How often are we as Christians accused of being hypocrites Because what we say and do in church on a Sunday, singing praises to God, praying, talking about loving each other, sometimes isn't what we practice at work and at home on a Monday and a Tuesday. As we bully people, as we knock them down, and as we abuse them in different ways. But we all know, like all issues, The hypothetical and the reality conflict in our answers as to whether it is staring us in the face or an academic exercise. Sometimes we know the theory, we know the academic, it's all logical until it actually confronts us in the reality. But this debate the Pharisees and scribes had with Jesus is serious and a matter for serious consideration and practice in our own lives, in our church life, and in the way the church and society mix in its legalistic procedures. Jesus challenged the Pharisees and scribes, and his challenge continues to us today in the way we seek to follow him and serve him. Your journey, my journey, might be different, but let's walk in the face of challenges that Jesus gives us and endeavour to show his love by the way we respond to them. 
After all this discourse of Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes, the chapter continues after this debate with two healing miracles. And maybe that puts all of that into perspective. And I'll encourage you once again to read those words of scripture at the end of Mark 7 yourself later today. The healing of the Syrophoenician woman and the healing of the deaf mute. We see that Jesus is in Gentile territory. In a sense, he's really rubbing it in as he goes into an area of unclean people. as far as the Pharisees and the scribes would understand it. Those Gentiles were unclean, just in the way that Jesus not washing his hands properly and not eating the right foods was unclean. Jesus is wiping out the distinction between the clean and the unclean people. As a Jew would not defile himself with unclean foods, neither would they mix with unclean people. Here is Jesus indicating that the Gentiles are not unclean, but that they too have a place in the kingdom of God. He then goes to Sidon. It's an interesting geographical scenario. And the route he takes is a bit like going from Devon to London via Manchester. It was a long journey. It didn't happen immediately. In fact, some say it may have been eight months later. Maybe Jesus was taking a slow journey, taking time out, peace before the storm, as in the next chapter he changes his tact in ministry. Back in Galilee, a man is brought to him for healing. The healing miracle beautifully illustrates Jesus dealing and treating of people. He was tender and compassionate with the man who probably didn't have much of a clue as to what was going on. Jesus' actions, his sensitivity, his touching were all important. He treated the man as an individual, not another case for healing. We see Jesus beautify God to his world in a special way. So we've whizzed a bit through these healing miracles in this chapter, but there's just one little verse I don't want us to miss that happens there. Because verse 36 says, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. It's interesting in life that so often when we're told something and told, please don't say anything to anyone, somehow all we want to do is tell others. Keeping something a secret is often the best way to spread something faster because people think of it as something to talk about. Jesus 
told them. No, in fact, he commanded them not to tell anyone. But the crowds had been amazed at what they saw in these healing miracles and what they experienced, so they couldn't stop talking about it. I wonder, if I tell you that we've heard some amazing things about Jesus this morning, because we've heard about how to live and show love to others, not by following the religious practices, but by letting God dwell in us and letting that love shine through. That's amazing. We've heard about a woman whose daughter was healed. That's amazing. We haven't really looked at that passage this morning, but it's there and it's amazing. We've heard a few sentences about the deaf mute who was healed and how Jesus touched him so tenderly And it was amazing. We've heard about how those people went out and spoke about it because they couldn't stop talking about it. We've heard some amazing things this morning. So if I tell you that as we read chapter 7 of Mark's Gospel, as we see those amazing things, If I tell you to keep silent and not to tell anyone about it, what will you do? Amen.